You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. The most merciless thing in the world is love. When love flees, all that remains is memory to compensate. Our friends were either going or gone. Their ghosts, the best our poor minds, could conjure to fill love's absence. I am haunted to this day by all those who are missing. Losing Kivi, Bloma, Ragno, and Zanzara proved heartbreaking for Speck, too. She went about her tasks, grim and determined, as if by staying busy she could keep phantoms at bay. After the disaster in the mine, we deposed Becca with his consent, and the diminished clan elected Smolok, our new leader. We lived above ground for the first time in years, bound to one small clearing in the forest by Chavisori's immobility. The impulse to go back home ate at us all. Five years had passed since we had left our camp, and we thought it might be safe to return. The last time anyone had seen our former home, the grounds had been denuded, but surely new growth had begun. Where black ash had been, saplings should be inching up amid the wildflowers and fresh grass. Just as nature reclaims its ruins, the people, too, would have forgotten about that boy lost in the river and the two fairies found in the market. They'd want life to remain as they thought it had been. Keith Donahue is a speechwriter for the National Endowment for the Arts. The Stolen Child is his first novel. Thank you for joining me, Keith. Thank you. Keith, tell us a little bit about the setup of this novel. It's really clever. The book follows Henry Day, who is captured one day as a young boy growing up in rural Pennsylvania in 1949. He's taken by the fairy changelings and goes to live with them, and the fairy changelings send one of their replacements to live as Henry Day with the Day family. And the book is essentially structured around their two life stories. And in alternating chapters, we get to hear how Henry Day, the changeling, comes to live with the Day family and how the stolen child becomes one of the fairy changelings. Did you research the fairy legends in order to create this? And did you do this research in advance to build up a superstructure to, to create the story on? Well, the, the, the story has sort of two roots. One is the Yeats poem, William Butler Yeats poem, The Stolen Child, which served as a touchstone for the novel. In the poem, it's a call by the fairies to the human child to come and live with them out in the woods, out in the wilderness. It's very romantic. It was written in the late 19th century. And the final verse is a little bit of a warning. The child who goes off on this adventure to live with the fairies won't hear the lowing of the cows on the hillside, won't hear the cattle sing on the hob, won't hear the mice bob around the oatmeal chest. 
he's giving up all the comforts of the hearth and home to go live with the fairies. I was intrigued by this story, by the possibilities there of, okay, is this as romantic as it sounds? Is this as wonderful as it sounds to go and live with the the, uh, the fairies in this timeless world? Um, so I, I was pretty much steeped in all this of Irish uh, mythology of the Celtic twilight in particular. The second strand in this confluence of ideas was a book by Sarah Hurdy called Mother Nature. And in it, she talks about, uh, from an anthropological and sociological standpoint, how groups of people raise children. One of the chapters concerns the changeling legend and, and how it grew and what it stems from, which is, in reality, a very sad story. In the Middle Ages, particularly in Europe, although the story is really kind of universal about creatures living in the woods, in the Middle Ages, parents who had a child with what they called a failure to thrive, the child had some sort of birth defect, or the parents simply had too many children to care for, etc., in order to rationalize not caring for that child anymore, they would claim that the child wasn't really human, that it had been left by the fairies, that it had been left by the—it was a changeling that had been a replica of a human child sent, and their real child was stolen away. So the parents could take that changeling baby and abandon it, leave it in the woods for the fairies to come and take take back their own. I, that was another really interesting strand that came into the creation of the book. So with those two things in mind, I forged ahead. Only later, really after the fact, have I come to know that you know so much about all the different aspects of the folk legend and how this same general story reappears time and time again in in literature. I knew of um, the changeling child in, in Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream, who becomes the object of contention between the two fairy characters. But other, th- other than those sort of general things, I really hadn't done a lot of research. It was I came to this fairly fresh. One of the things you do that is really interesting is to take a, a taxonomical approach to the supernatural world. And we see this in the opening of the book. Right. As, tell us what led you to that uh, procedure. Well, the story is really the confession of the changeling Henry Day, the one who assumes the identity of the child and the stolen child. He is confessing, and we, you, we readers learn this through the course of the book, he's confessing to his wife that he's not who he, who she thought he was, uh, that he came from somewhere else. And, and so in order to, I mean, it's in character with the, this, with Henry Day, the narrator, to take that kind of approach, that abstract approach. I'm going to, you know, lay this all out for you and, and I'm not going to be very emotional about it. I'll be very, I'll try to be as precise as possible. Uh, he's a composer. He's an abstract thinker, very tense towards abstraction, a pianist, etc. And I felt that that was that was, from his perspective, uh, 
the right approach. One of the things that works well in this novel is the conflict between self-definition and classification. Right. Tell us a little bit about how you play that out between the two points of view. Right. Well, who are we? Uh, you know, the, the questions of identity uh, bounce back and forth between the two narrators. I mean, they're both Henry Day. You know, the stolen child is Henry Day. When he be- goes to live with the changelings, he becomes any day. Um, at, as a sort of near rhyme, when the when the changelings come to name him, to give him a new name so that he can become one of them. His problem in the novel is the fact that he forgets his past and struggles to reclaim it or or reclaim it in order to move forward. He's not, you know, time and again in the book, he he hints at, you know, I'd like to go back home. I'd like to see my mother again. I'd like to... But he adjusts because he comes to this experience at seven years old at a time when questions of identity are, are, sh- are being shaped in the child's mind. Uh, who I am, my own sense of mortality becomes paramount during those early years. Did you look do research into child development to write this I, novel? I worked for a couple of years in child, uh, childhood, uh, early childhood education issues. Um, I, I was at a government agency for three years that did a lot of um, oversight for child care facilities, federal child care facilities. So this kind of started things percolating for me in terms of when, when does this happen? When does, does our sense of self become firmly established? And actually, that's at the heart of the novel, right? It's one Henry Day who progresses from 7 to 37 or by the end of the book, um, and the other who's stuck in time, who's stuck as a child. And they, they, you know, as you might imagine with parallel narratives, they cross over from time to time. And that was the playful part for me, uh, sort of keeping them at a distance, yet making sure that they intersect and get sort of these oblique glimpses of one another as reminders. And by the conclusion of the, of the book, they have to confront one another. The stolen child inside e- each one of us we have to confront at some point in time. You know, one of the questions that really interested me at the, in writing the book was, you know, what would the seven-year-old version of myself or yourself think of the adult we've become? Uh, how, and, and vice versa. I mean, what happened to the ambitions, the dreams, the, the fantasy life of the child who we once were? And that's how I was striving for some sort of universal here with uh, the questions of identity that we carry inside ourselves, our own stolen child. You do some wonderful layering effects of time and, and do a lot of playing with time in this novel. So tell me a little bit about how you, you approached the subject of time in this novel. Right. In a way, it was madness to write the novel (laughs) the way that it's written because I wrote it sequentially. 
So you wrote it as it's as we I, read it. Pretty much as I mean, there's there have been revisions, of course, but pretty much in the sequence that it's that it's structured in wow. the book. Yeah, yeah, and and I didn't want I didn't want the worlds to sort of the parallel world worlds to mirror each other perfectly. I wanted them rather than reflect one another, I wanted them to refract off one another. So an event that happens in one world might happen, say, in chapter 11. Uh, you'll get the alternate version of that in chapter 16. You know, the sequence is not simultaneous or, or chronologically simultaneous. That, while it was, as I say, sort of madness to manage uh, structurally, I think helped open up the possibilities of suspense and uh, and I hope enjoyment for the reader who you know thinks that this episode, as I say, that happened at point, uh, although chapter eleven in the book, you know, you get to see it from the other side in chapter sixteen. Let's say one of the things that I thought you did really well is to create a lot of situations where, and this is very pleasurable for the reader where the reader knows things that the characters don't. Right. And the reader gets to see the characters discover things that the reader is already sussed to. So tell me a little bit. Now, you said you wrote this sequentially. Did you have some kind of outline or notes or a, a database? <laughs> a timeline? No, I, I, I kept it pretty much in my head. Is is really I knew where I was going, I mean, mm -hmm. when I wrote it. I mean, uh, you know, all stories, right? Tend toward resolution of, or of conflict, or some um, some it may not be satisfactory resolution in some cases, but some they, they, these two trains are heading for the same point. So I knew that I knew that I knew where I wanted it to hit, where these two stories to collide. In terms of in terms of structure. And what you were getting at with the uh, with how readers are responding to it, I think you know one of the things about writing is not just the language, not just the plot, not just the characters. It's that ability to postpone the inevitable um, in an entertaining and uh, meaningful way. Uh, when you have two characters with the same name and the same similar identities, you know they're going to meet up. Uh, they're, they would be disappointing if they didn't meet up. So I had that going. Then there were other smaller you know, subplots uh, in the story that I wanted to talk about that also propel the, the narrative, I think. Yeah. This book, of course, is largely about the family hmm. in, a, in a very interesting approach. Tell me a little bit, why did... I, I could imagine that, in a sense, you could deal with a lot of the subjects and issues of this book and never resort to the fantastic. Right. I can see there's a parallel universe version of this that has nothing to do with fairies or any other thing. Right. I'm, you alluded to working in federal uh, children's uh, homes... I, I can see some of that happening in the way you've created the system of the fairies, right, the, right, right, where where they live. So, tell us a little bit what 
when did you make the decision? I guess that when you read the Yeats poem, you made the decision to go with the Fantastic. Well, I had I had read the Yeats poem, and I don't know if you know the Waterboys uh, did a recording of it. Um, oh goodness, it must be fifteen years ago, and that was one of the tunes that I carried around in my head. This Waterboys uh, version more so than the Yeats poem itself. Actually, you're absolutely right. It could be dealt with in terms of purely domestic uh, situation where you have a child who has some identity issues to resolve over the course of his life uh, and the interplay with the family. Um, what drove me, and maybe that's, that's too strong a word, but what led me to using the fantastical was more the question of how do we do we deal with two characters, one who ages and one who stays stuck in time, um, telling a story simultaneously and interacting at some points. So those were the questions that, that really... <clears throat> I never really thought of this as a fantasy, to be quite honest. I had no idea I was writing a fantasy. I mean, I know that you know, fairies and so forth, <laughs> there's little evidence of them and so so on. But I wasn't really concerned with that. I mean, I wasn't really concerned with the fantastic elements of it. I've read some fantasy. I like fantasy. You know, I've read some science fiction. I like science fiction. But I, I my, my tastes are, are Catholic and universal and... And so on. I I'm, I read all kinds of things. It's more I'm more attracted by the nature of the story and what the story the what the story says about ourselves. You know, this is a question. This is a book about being the other, um, being. You know, Henry Day feels apart from his family, the Day family, even when he marries and has a son. He feels apart, other. Uh, same same thing with any day who becomes you know the classic other uh, in the story that he's trying to assimilate into this group of other people. That's the the changelings, the fairies, and yet he's got the same problems, same human problems that we. All, he falls in love for goodness' sake, and he's stuck at seven. What do you do about that? <laughs> You know, you've, you, there's a problem. This gives you a manner to address sexuality in a really, really right. interesting way. So talk about the contrasting sexualities between Any Day and Henry Day. Yeah, the changelings, of course, are, are children uh, who have been stolen away and now become these fairies, these fairy changelings. They're, and they're um, pre-puberty. So they don't really function all that well sexually. Uh so when issues of, and yet mentally, emotionally, they grow. So they're perfectly capable of forming relationships, uh, bonds. There are lots of pairs and doubles in the, in the book uh, among the fairies that, you know, they, they pair off and so forth that have nothing to do with sex, but, but a lot to do with intimacy. And that's that's the the problem that Any Day faces in his relationship with Spec. 
they're they have to give up their eternal childhood if in order for them to have a real sexual relationship or real adult relationship of course that's you know same same holds true for us um henry day of course he has his own set of fears he he once upon a time was a changeling once upon a time was a fairy he falls in love marries and he's wondering you know what's my kid gonna be like i mean how's my kid gonna turn out half changeling half you know just he can't does my child get her side of the gene pool you know that sort of thing so there's there was a lot of really interesting interplay for me as in creating it uh about the the sexuality of the characters and whether or not it's possible to portray uh romantic love in a way that that doesn't uh include the possibility of sex you know any day in specs relationship is is you know they're trapped by their own nature and i think there's some interesting things that happen interesting decisions that the characters make in the book that uh are re- are a reaction to the, those questions of of love and sex one of the themes that struck me very strongly was the transformation of the american landscape in the past 60 years right you do a fantastic <clears throat> job of of portraying this Entirely in the background, right? But it, it, you can't help but notice it. So tell me a little bit about what made you bring that to the fore. Well, uh, and that's why the book is set in the time period that it is, from '49 through the late '70s, um, when I think a lot of the post-war uh, development, the encroaching suburbs, and so forth, happened. And the reason, the real reason for all that, has to do with the persistence of myth and as a as a very real force in our daily lives even when i was a child which wasn't in the 40s but the 60s my mother would say you know seven o'clock in the morning on a summer's day go (laughs) we'll see you for dinner um and catch a sketch can what we would do would be to explore the woods in, in packs like the fairies, or by ourselves. We'd get lost. We'd hear strange noises and imagine virtually anything. Nowadays, I think that freedom of, for children is gone to a large degree because of parents' very real fears of you know strangers and so forth uh, lurking in the woods, uh, sexual predators and all that. Um, the downside of our fears is that it doesn't allow that our children the, the that free play and interaction with the natural world. The downside of suburbia is that the woods are gone and the creatures in the woods are gone. Real and imaginary are gone. We, and we need these stories. We need these myths. Uh, we need to be enchanted by the natural world i think it's it's something you know that speaks to the psyche the human psyche that that empathetic relationship with the unseen world 
it's kind of disappearing. And that's that's how the book, in a sense, is elegiac for for that time period, for that uh, lost lost world of you know. I'm I'm not trying to romanticize the fifties or sixties or whatever by any stretch. There was lots wrong, but there's the question of belief, the question of myth, uh, the question of enchantment, uh, were all in my mind. That's why I talk about, as I do, the the encroaching suburbia. Music plays a big part in this as well. Are you a musician? No, I'm not. Interesting. And I'm not a fairy either. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Or a hobgoblin. You're, you know, Mm. ginger. You could very well, uh, pass. Right, right, right. Um, Tell us a little bit about how music and myth and math all map kind of one to the next to the next. Right. Well, music in particular um, being a far more abstract art form uh, in the sense that it's based, I mean, the, the keyboard and, and playing music, from my understanding, from my listening are based on a lot of mathematical constructs. This combination of fingers on these notes will create this sound and so forth. And composers and pianists understand this uh, almost intuitively. And it's a way of looking at the world that is not in opposition but, but plays off the that relate that empathetic relationship with nature um and that societies have had at one time or another you know the the tradition of abstracting nature or being empathetic with nature through through art and why henry day is a pianist why henry day is is a um, composer is that he wants to desperately abstract himself, abstract himself and abstract nature and push it away. And you see in the book, you know, he's afraid to go in the woods. Well, after he becomes Henry Day, I don't want any part of that. Um, it's sort of going back to that question at the beginning of the book where, you know, why does he set up this taxonomy? It's because he's trying desperately to be, this is what he thinks it is to be human. Music is as otherworldly then as right. the fairies. As the for him, the absolutely. Fairies. And for us. And for us. I have to ask, is there a specific piece by the Kronos Quartet? <laughs> yeah, they're mentioned in the book. I mean, you know, I knew them from working at the National Endowment for the Arts, uh, you know, and they were a not-for-profit and so forth, so they were eligible for for grants, and I was so they were kind of in the background of of the sounds of my life in the early nineties, late eighties. Uh, but there's no specific piece. Um, Tales of Wonder, I think, is is the uh, is the piece that this group records out here in California, not so far from here. That Henry Day comes to California to to record with this Kronos like group. And that's his one big break before, you know, he goes back to his sort of mundane life. And, that, you know, there there are 
Necronos itself tends towards abstraction in a very heavy way, right? Oh, yes. Uh, Philip Glass and, and so forth. Uh, you know, I don't. I have no great claims about my own musicology whatsoever, but it's very. It's it's a, almost as mysterious uh, as the fantasy world, and and intriguing. You engage in a bit of travel literature here. Take yes. You take us to Germany. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's very, very effective. So tell, did you visit the borderland town that you visit in the book? No, and I've never been there either. I've, there's plenty of stuff I made up about this book. I mean, I did some. I did a little bit of research to sort of get my facts right. But I, you're right. It is a borderland town. It, once upon a time, it was part of Bohemia. Now it's part of Czechoslovakia, which, of course, now is no longer exists either, you know, uh, in terms of its 1968 reality and so forth. So it was set on the border. I wanted a border town between that had once been called one thing in German and now has become Cheb and, and, and Czech. And there's some very interesting questions about uh, the Germans who lived in that part of the world and how they were dealt with after... World War Two and so forth, and anybody who's listening is free to go <laughs> research all that. Uh, I, I found it interesting, but I was basically concerned about the the borderness between the two worlds. Um, that's why I picked that that particular place. Uh, there was a very uh, interesting uh, sighting of the Blessed Virgin Mary in that region of the world around the time the original Henry Day is. The original changelings, yes. I did not. Mar Marping, and it's and it and it evokes one of the things about those border towns is they evoke um, society in its fullest, in its the way it's right. very complex, right? And, and the way different uh, groups all are jostling for attention, power, money, wealth. Absolutely, all about the jostling. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the most interesting part. One of the persistent themes of this book, and it's very well done, is this idea of the doppelganger and the imposter. And I think you do a great job at getting at this feeling. I think many, many people, to a certain extent, feel that they're imposters. Right. It, because I, I've worked in a lot of uh, engineering jobs where people who don't have the engineering degree, they might write the best code in the world. They might have been in the business for 20 years. But if they don't have that engineering degree, they kind of feel like they got in on the slide. Right. And, right. and you really uh, evoke that anxiety and the paranoia. There's a edge of paranoia in this book. And paranoia, what's interesting is paranoia is a human trait, isn't it? Right. Absolutely. Uh, and and we're all a little bit paranoid, I think, at one point or another. The uh, the question of the doppelganger and the double and and the twins, uh, they're... they're Henry, when Henry Day becomes Henry Day, uh, he's immediately introduced to his twin sisters, who in some ways are, you know, the mirror of each other. When we see the the fairy society through the course of the book, their pairs, uh, Lukog and Smolok, Kivi and Bloma, uh, Onions and Becca, uh, there, there's... I was fascinated by this question of doubleness and how it contributes to or doesn't contribute to 
our sense of identity, of who we are. If there's somebody out there, you know, if you're an identical twin, you know, there's somebody out there who looks almost exactly like you. Uh, so is it what's on the surface that gives us our identity? Is it how we look? Is it how others perceive us? Or is there something deeper that is that is at the core of who we are? And I think you're also right about the question of, you know, that feeling of being an imposter. You know, a lot of people have come up to me and uh, talking about the book has said, you know, well, this really explains everything about my kid. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, people have said, you know, I, this, I felt like I was an imposter in my own family. You know, these are emails that, are, you know, are coming in through the publisher and people general, genuinely reacting to the book about those very questions of feeling apart, feeling other. You do a great job of getting into the alien point of view, the cuckoo's point of view. And I'd, I'd like to know that you don't appear to be alien, so no. <laughs> <laughs> tell me, how did you gear yourself up for these alternating chapters and the alternating points of view? Did you before lunch, after lunch? Oh, right, right, right. No, I, I mean, the, the I'll tell you the, the real curious thing that happened to me in the course of writing the book was each time I started a new chapter, the other side of the story was pulling at me to sort of get back to that part of the story. Whether I was right, if I was writing about the fairies, Henry Day was popping up in my imagination and vice versa. The trick for me was trying to remember what it felt like to be seven. Uh, and the trick, on the other end, the trick for me was trying to imagine what it felt like to feel totally alien from the families and social groups that I was, you know, a part of. Um, you know, and if when writing in the voice of Henry Day, I had to heighten my own <laughs> mild case of paranoia into a full-blown paranoia at some, t at some points, particularly towards the end of the book where he, you know, starts seeing them everywhere, seeing these fairies everywhere, that he's pushed away all his life. And some of these things are, you know, some of the, these things you do through style. Some of these things you can handle. And I remember sort of editorial correspondence back and forth about you know, why does he call them little devils, and why does, you know, and, and so forth. And he is trying to desperately to push back uh, from his own fears, uh, his own paranoia, and and emerge as a real human being uh, by the end of the story, just the same way that any day, you know, is haunted by his human memories, the memories of his parents, the memories of his family. And yet he has to push past that if he's going to find love. You know, and in my mind, you know, this is a love story in a way uh, about any day and Speck uh, and Henry Day and Tess and his son. Could you tell me a little bit about how you create the this world of fairy, where they live, it's really gritty. 
Right. <laughs> and you, you said that you'd worked in uh, federal family housing, federal children's No, federal child care. Federal child care. Tell, tell me about how did the child care inform that, in the way, especially in the way they bond in the, the right. groups. Right, right. Uh, well, that that maybe worked subconsciously. I'm not sure. Um, and I, I did want to do the counterpoint to the Yates version of things where – you know, when the fairies in the stolen child call the child and they'd say, oh, come with us and we'll show you their stolen red cherries and the f- whisper to the salmon and so forth. And that's all very nice. Um, but, you know, anybody who's camped more than one night out in the woods, it's dirty. There are bugs. You you know, you've got to struggle. And that's where the, the I think the grittiness of that world comes in. By the way, I you know, some people hate that. Some people think this is the worst thing that that you could write about to to sort of you know, rip off the wings of the Disney fairies is not what you want to be doing. That's how some people reacted to it. I, you know, I wrote what I wrote, um, and I thought, how would they? How would somebody who was seven and stuck in time and had to live uh, surreptitiously in and hidden from all human observance, had to fend for themselves, had to steal uh, their clothes, had to steal their supplies, had to, you know, uh, survive the winters. Uh, There's not much food out there, you know. They had to eat bugs. They had to steal sugar, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, That was great fun to write. I mean, that was was just the wilderness of the imagination (laughs) type of thing where you could frolic uh, in terms of, okay, you're on. How do you become a fairy? <laughs> you know, And what's it really like? And, and uh, particularly in, in the 20th century uh, where the book is set, what would it really be like? How would you, the, well, some British reviewer were, were likened them to, to uh, foxes, uh, urban foxes where they're, you know, foxes are scavengers and so forth come into town and skulk back out into the woods and that sort of thing. And that's, yeah, okay. There's a love of reading, a love of the library, a love of writing, and a lot of fantastic literary devices in this novel. And I'm curious, did these literary devices, I mean, there are so many beautiful fill-ups of transitions. One of the things you do very well, and is to move the story forward. Mm. A story of this nature, it's not like a, in a sense, it's not like a thriller where there's a mystery at the beginning and you're reading forward to find out, you know, what happens. So you do a great job of moving the story. And tell me a little bit how your love of literature and reading informs the literature, reading, and libraries in the book. Right. Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day, uh, actually. My own childhood experiences where we didn't have the same kind of library that's in The Stolen Child. Uh, my mother used to take us once a week to the bookmobile. Uh, I don't even know if they have bookmobiles anymore, but these were traveling vans, uh, large size vans. They would stop in these small towns, and, and kids could you know, go in and check out 20 books or whatever. And that's what I would do, I mean, uh, from a very early age. Uh, I can still remember <clears throat> the thrill of going to the bookmobile and and um, 
taking away my treasures uh, for the week. And that, that started as a very young age. And, you know, I've read constantly from, from for 30-some-odd years. So one of the things that I was after in the book was trying to get at the subterranean uh, reality of the fairies, uh, the, the underground realities of our stolen child. And so I thought, well, this would be perfect. Let's set up a library uh, that has a crawl space underneath it where they can, you know, hide. And right above them are the books of the world, the st- other stories, uh, all the once upon a times that, that um, every book, fiction, fantasy, nonfiction, uh, encourages us to believe. Uh, you know, uh, I sometimes get frustrated with with this notion that I'm that in this book I'm asking you to believe anything any other book hasn't already asked you to believe from word one that this is made up this is a story I'm going to tell you and they all start the same um, even ones that are ostensibly about facts so yeah these the stories have have been a part of my life forever um, and I can't imagine living without them. So I knew in the book that we had a kind of static situation where after this, after they make this exchange, you know, one person gets to grow up. It's harder to write about somebody who's stuck in time, you know, because you're pretty much got the same set of problems eternally. Uh, so some of the things that I, that I I tried to to do uh, to move the story forward. Uh, there's another kidnapping that is uh, in in at the heart of the book, where Oscar Love, the nephew of Oscar Love, um, is is targeted by the changelings for the change, and those kinds of you know following that subplot and all its implications which which opened up to me over the course of writing it were were part of the story but yeah books books and stories you know any day how he stays up stays part of the human world is that he doesn't give up reading like a lot of the other fairies they say you know they they forget how to read or they not so interested in books or you know they just read comic books or whatever uh he wants to keep his his love of language alive and that's how i wanted to contrast him with the more abstract henry day by making him the more empathetic any day um i don't know if that answers your question or not but <laughs> well one thing I'm interested in is um, beautiful prose, beautiful yeah. language. How did you develop this? Is was this the result of extensive revision, or did this pour forth from your soul in the, <laughs> in the midnight candle? Right. I, I I I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I've I think poetry played a part in developing my style. I mean, I still read poetry to this day. 
there's a epigraph to the novel by Louise Gluck uh, from her poem Nostos about, you know, we see the world once in childhood. The rest is memory. And that was kind of a jumping off point for me as well. Right. There's something right about that. So in in any any development of my own style, I'm always trying to get at the right expression for the idea behind it. So again, it's one of those mysteries that that I can't explain. As a writer, this is your first book tour. Yes, and, and I wanted to ask you about book tours. How does it? How do you feel? This is does this help your writing? Hurt your writing? Is it pleasant distraction? Uh, it's it is a distraction. I can tell you that. Um, it's it's always, you know, the book is the book has done has exceeded my expectations in terms of what what the long story of of trying to get it published and trying to find an agent and so on. How long did that take? Well, I, I wrote the book in about eight months, and it took two years to find an agent uh, with who saw its potential. Um, and it, it was turned down maybe ten times, and then he auctioned it, you know, right away. And Antelie Stubbleday wants it, and you know, blah blah blah, this money and so forth. <laughs> it surprised me because by that time I was thinking to myself, well. You know, there's some literary presses, some small presses that might be interested in this kind of, you know, slightly different take. And and I I hadn't thought of publishing Fame and Fortune. Maybe if I had done this 20 years ago, I would have been thinking more about that. But I just wanted the story to get out there. And even now, where there's all kinds of wonderful things happening, it's really hoopla to me about tours and other countries and so forth. It's all very nice, and and I'm glad for my fam- my own family's sake that it's all happened uh, financially and so forth. But, you know, it's always been about the story. See, going to doing readings, doing interviews, if, if it's a way to get the story out there more, I'm all for it uh, because I love this story. And that's the... <laughs> that's the truth of the matter. I was excited when it started coming out um, suddenly, one day. Do you have a new book are you work, that you're working on? I am indeed. I'm about a third of the way through, I should I think. Um, and it's, it's also about things unseen and why we believe what we believe. Uh, and beyond that, I'm, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> We've been speaking with Keith Donahue. His new novel is The Stolen Child. Thank you for joining me, Thank Keith. Thank you, Rick. Thanks so much. We'll conclude this interview with Keith Donahue with a reading of the opening portion of his novel, The Stolen Child. Don't call me a fairy. We don't like to be called fairies anymore. Once upon a time, fairy was a perfectly acceptable catch-all for a variety of creatures but now it has taken on too many associations. Etymologically speaking, a fairy is something quite particular, related in kind to the naiads or water nymphs, and while of the genus we are sui generis. The word fairy is drawn from fae, 
Old French, Phi, which itself comes from the Latin Fata, the goddess of fate. The Fae lived in groups called the Fairy, between the heavenly and earthly realms. There exist in this world a range of sublunary spirits that Carmenibus coela possunt dudecere lunum, and they have been divided since ancient times into six kinds, fiery, aerial, terrestrial, watery, subterranean, and the whole class of fairies and nymphs. Of the sprites of fire, water, and air, I know next to nothing, but the terrestrial and underground devils I know all too well. And of these, there is infinite variety and attendant myth about their behavior, custom, and culture. Known around the world by many different names, Laris, Janie, Fawn, Satyrs, Foliots, Robin Goodfellows, Pucks, Leprechauns, Pukas, She, Trolls. The few that remain live hidden in the woods and are rarely seen or encountered by human beings. If you must give me a name, call me Hobgoblin. Or better yet, I am a changeling, a word that describes within its own name what we are bound and intended to do. We kidnap a human child and replace him or her with one of our own. The hobgoblin becomes the child, and the child becomes the hobgoblin. Not any boy or girl will do, but only those rare souls, baffled by their young lives, or attuned to the weeping troubles of this world. The changelings select carefully, for such opportunities might come along only once a decade or so. A child who becomes part of our society might have to wait a century before his turn in the cycle arrives, when he can become a changeling and re-enter the human world. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.